greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is a Wrong Place, a Right Crime. I am your host, Frank Zafiro, and this is the feature episode for February, in which you're going to hear an interview with Quay Corti. Now, the person who did that interview is not yours truly. It is actually my special guest co-host for the episode, former guest himself, John Hoda. Hey, John. Hey, how are you, Frank? Hey, I'm good. Uh, you know, for those folks who haven't heard the episode that you were on and haven't made their way over to uh, any of your podcasts, um, maybe you could uh, let folks know who you are real quick. Sure. Uh, I've been a lifelong investigator, former law enforcement, uh, insurance fraud investigator, and then for the last 25 years, a, a real life private investigator. And uh, about 10 years ago, I got the writing bug. And uh, from that, I developed a series with uh, my badass FBI agent, Marsha O'Shea, and uh, I'm also in process of writing a, a cozy mystery series as we speak. And also, uh, as you mentioned, I have a podcast, and it's titled My Favorite Detective Stories, where I talk to uh, crime fiction writers about their flawed fictional detectives. And one of the cool things about that is that you intermittently feature uh, brand new authors. I do. That's true. I love writing, uh, listening to uh, conversations with uh, debut authors, uh, listening to how their ideas uh, were fermented and how they got it out into the world. And just that day, that first day of launching is, is just so exciting. Well, you interviewed Quay Cordy, and we're going to find out more about him in a second. Uh, but before we do, I do need to remind everyone that Wrong Place Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. And every month during the feature episode, Lance Wright from Down and Out Books comes on, lets us know what's going on with the publisher, uh, what new books are coming out, and so forth. And so uh, let's go uh, hear from Lance. Hey, Frank, and thanks for having me back to talk about new titles from Down and Out Books in February. Up first is the third in Tina Wolf's De La Cruz Case Files series, Raising Stakes. Cleveland homicide detective Jesus De La Cruz is tasked with two cases, a murder and a special project that needs to be solved quickly and quietly. The two cases are different and yet the same. To solve them, De La Cruz has to think laterally, yanking down the curtain to expose the master minding the strings. Next is the annual collection of short stories from our imprint, All Due Respect, edited by Chris Radigan and David Nemeth, with stories by a top tier of crime fiction writers. Next, we're thrilled to welcome best-selling crime novelist Les Roberts to our family of authors with the standalone Sheehan's Dog. When former Irish Mafia hitman Brock Sheehan is asked for assistance by his long-lost nephew, who is now a person of interest in the murder of a former athlete, he and his pit bull Connor uncover the seedier aspects of the dead man's life and turn over to police the real killer of the sports legend. Finally, the 23rd episode of A Grifter's Song premieres this month, Diamond Dogs by Gabriel Valjean. Sam and Rachel find themselves stranded in Newark during a nor'easter and befriended by a mysterious, sophisticated stranger. They quickly recognize him as one of their own, a veteran grifter who poses no threat. When he extends them his hospitality, they accept. But there's a catch. There's always a catch. 
Their new friend is a diamond dog, and he wastes no time asking if they'll run with him. I'll look forward to catching up with you next month with a new slate of titles from Down and Out Books. All right. Thank you, Lance. Uh, some good titles there. Um, and speaking of good titles, we're going to move into uh, a gentleman who has written some. Uh, Quay Cordy is the author that uh, John chose to interview for this uh, guest co-host episode. Uh, John, what made you choose him? And uh, tell us a little bit about him before we hear from the interview. Sure. Uh, my interest in Quay came from uh, our newsletter at the uh, Private Eye Writers Association. He wrote uh, a book that won an award called the Seamus Award, put out by the Private Eye Writers Association. And he also was a uh, nominee, a finalist, with the 2020 Edgar Allan Poe Award. Now, his uh, debut was uh, Wife of the Gods, and this was where he introduced an inspector, Darko Dawson, series, and this was on the uh, LA Times bestseller list in 2009. But later on, uh, in 2020, it was the Emma Dijon, D-J-A-N, that's how I spell it, uh, investigations uh, series with The Missing American. And he followed it with a a sequel by the uh, name of, or titled, Sleep Well, My Lady. And it was for The Missing American that he won the uh, Seamus Award. So I just thought with his background, uh, being uh, born to a, a Ghanaian father and a black American mother and being a physician, that uh, he would be a very interesting interview. And it turned out that it was. Well, that's a great introduction. And I don't need to add anything anything to that. Uh, let's just dive uh, straight into the interview that uh, John had with uh, Quay Cordy. Hi, Quay. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, John. How are you? Well, I'm glad we finally got to connect. Uh, yeah. That, uh, that cold you had really kicked your butt for a couple weeks. <laughs> yes, it did. Yeah. That's okay. I mean, people in Pasadena are allowed to get colds too, right? So. Yeah, it's freezing today. It's like 49 <laughs> degrees and cloudy. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> I Don't go any near any tall bridges. I mean, you know, oh, my Lord. So... Yeah. Uh, but it's uh, it's uh, fifty degrees here on the East Coast as I record it, and uh, yeah, today's date is um, um, December thirteenth, twenty twenty one, and I'm just so happy that you came on. I want to congratulate you right off the bat for uh, winning the Seamus Award, twenty twenty one Seamus Award by the uh, Private Eye Writers Association of America. And your Edgar nomination by the Mystery Writers of America for The Missing American, yeah, uh, published, published by uh, Soho. So yeah. that's really cool. I'm really happy for you. Um, that's really good stuff. Now, thank you. But this isn't the first time you've been to the rodeo. You've written uh, two series now, Emma John and Darko mm-hmm. Dawson. So, yeah. uh, but before we get into the series and your protagonist, Tell me a little bit about how you got started writing and what you also did for a day job for a while back in the day. Well, you know, my writing was actually my first ambition as, as a kid. I had quite a number of them, but writing was one of them. And funnily enough, it was always the mystery genre because I was a Sherlock Holmes nut. Mm. And I also read a lot of the uh, uh, Kids' mysteries, uh, you know, the, the equivalent of um, 
<clears throat> Hardy Boys and so on. I, I grew up in, in Ghana, West Africa, so a lot of the, the reading I did was of, of British, um, mm-hmm. by British crime writers, because of course Ghana was a ex-colony of, the, of uh, Great Britain. So, um, but I was always sort of emulating uh, that kind of writing. And, you know, to this day, I um, loved to write mysteries. And, um, but then, of course, then I went on to the second, my second uh, ambition, which was to be a, a physician. First, I started, I wanted to be a vet, which I still would actually like to do. But then I went into medicine, and for a long time, my creative juices were just squelched. And uh, it wasn't until after I had, you know, graduated from medical school, started work as a uh, an internist um, in Los Angeles, that this hankering to write uh, returned. And uh, and then there was uh, several years of, you know, beating around trying to find what my genre really was. And eventually, I came back to. Uh, mysteries, and I also came back to my roots in Ghana, where, which I had not visited for a you know for several years, uh, about fifteen years or so. So, I really had to revisit Ghana from that time, which was around two thousand eight or so, and um, you know reacquaint myself with the with the country, which had changed uh, hugely since I had left it uh, decades before. It's interesting. You had to go back to your hometown to do research. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I say hometown, but home country. And yeah. that's that's cool. Um and that's and we're gonna we're gonna touch upon Ghana a little bit later on in the conversation. Yeah. But um so there's that uh thing called being a doctor. And mm-hmm. and I've interviewed <laughs> other doctors before that have also written. Uh and uh-huh. and it, it, there is a, a a place for the release of creative juices in the writing. Some of them do it in, you know, uh, publications related to uh, yeah. being a doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, others uh, then dip their toe into some sort of fiction writing, and yeah. depending on what it is, uh, they uh, they make a go of it. Now, it just so happens that I, I like to interview um, people that like to tell mysteries, like to talk about crime stories. So I gravitate towards anyone that writes that, but to have a doctor or someone, an anesthesiologist, someone from that background, talk about it. And they did what they, what you just talked about, talking about what you know best. You know Ghana, and you also knew uh, that you, you loved mysteries. And so you gravitated back to writing mysteries, and that's how you got started. But how how did you then do the balancing act of being a uh, a doctor and which are very long and difficult hours with finding time to write yeah great question um with great difficulties mm. <laughs> is my is, is the cynical answer but um just as a, a side note as you probably know there's this uh long tradition of uh doctors who have either turned writers or we're doing it um, simultaneously, including, of course, Shiraka Kona Doyle, who, who never got much of a, uh, a following as a, a physician. In fact, supposedly he started writing as he was waiting for the non-existent patients to show up at his door. <laughs> and, 
And then Michael Crichton, who um, he, well, this, the legend is that he actually started writing when he was in, in medical school, which, which makes me a little bit um, annoyed because, like, Michael, where did you get time to do that? Right. Um, and uh, uh, supposedly he never even got his um, license uh, to practice medicine. He never practiced a day in his life, and he went on to um, just write all these, you know, mega bestsellers. Um, another is uh, Robin Cook, of course. He's an sure. ophthalmologist. Uh, even Somerset Morn, people don't realize, is actually a physician. Hmm. Um, yeah, so quite quite a few of them, <laughs> quite a few of them um, have turned to mystery in particular, and I'm not sure uh, why that is. I think there's some uh, sort of corollary or... Um, comparison between solving uh, medical diagnoses and solving mysteries. I think there's a close relationship to that. We can talk about it a little later. Um, but the I had started writing, I had started medicine before I went back to my um, authoring journey. And I would say it was on and off, on and off. It wasn't a, a constant thing. Sometimes I was writing, sometimes there were months on end or even a year or two that I didn't write at all. And it wasn't until 2008, 2009 that I wrote my first novel that really had an impact on the, the agent that I sent to. Uh, the others had been sort of, well, yeah, we don't really want to publish this. It's not quite our thing, blah, blah, blah. But mm -hmm. this this was the first time that um, my agent, who's Marley Rusoff in New York, who who actually said, you know, this might be something that uh, we're interested in. And it took me another year or so to get that book into shape, which was uh, Wife of the Gods, the first of the Darko Dawson uh, mysteries. And, and did you did you know that that was going to be a series? Um, no, I didn't. Um, well, did I? I don't know. I, I think I did. I, well, I think I wanted it to be, but I wasn't sure because I didn't know, would, you know, would anybody accept this one, you know, start. Mm -hmm. But I think I did want a series, yes. I, 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 do, love, I do like series. I've, I've, written, I've read many series of uh, different authors, and I just like, you know, you like going back to that character that you think you, you know um, mm. or that you can get to know more about. So I did like that, but I didn't know if it was going to be a series. Oh, the um, reason the reason I yeah, asked was because um, I spoke with an author who, uh, when the author wrote a debut novel, and it was picked up by an agent and got sold immediately to a, a publishing house, and the publishing house said, "This would make a great series. Do you have any more in mind?" And the author said, "Sure, of course." Mm -hmm. yeah. And the author did not. <laughs> so uh, four books later, uh, yeah. that author's doing a fine job with that series yeah. that was going to be a standalone. Yeah. But uh, I, I, I say that in jest, but it's always good practice for a writer to say, sure. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I do it all the time. I yeah. do it all the time because, uh, you know, as soon as I finish publishing one book, I can start kind of count down the weeks to where that email comes from. The publisher. So, what are you working on right now? Mm. And um, sometimes I have absolutely zilch. <laughs> yeah. uh, I do have something, and I usually say to them, "No, oh, I can have some, you know, an outline for you in like two weeks." And I, you know, then after that is complete panic because mm. I have absolutely nothing. 
Mm. <laughs> so yeah, you you always need to say yes. I do have something. You should never let on that you have nothing. <laughs> yeah, I I someday I'd like to say, well, you know, it's going to start with the words Fifty Shades." <laughs> And just kind of leave it there, and I and just listen to the cringe sound on the other side of the. Uh, yes, exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sound. Yeah, I say that jokingly, but uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I wish I had a tenth of the money that the the Fifty Shades of Grey author had, and uh, but yeah, just tell your publishers that you're going to take a quick uh, dive into erotica or or rom coms and uh, see see how they respond to that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they already know I can't write that stuff anyway. Okay. I, I I'm joking, of course, and and it's good to have some fun because I, I would think, oh my God, what would I? I'd be blushing the whole time. So, uh, so now you had a balance, uh, writing and and working. So tell me how that did work because you kind of told me about the other authors, but you, yeah, you didn't tell me yeah. about you all. <laughs> about me, about me. Uh, you know, it was a lot of time management um always early morning writer so it meant writing before work uh it used to be i could get two hours in before work but you know it's it's really funny as the the years went on and things like uh, email and um social media Mm -hmm. and so on came in more into the forefront you know i found my my time, my actual writing time dwindling, you know, to, from two hours down to an hour because I just spent an hour answering emails to, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes not being at all satisfied with how much work I, I got in. Um, and then I, I developed an adaptive uh, quality in which I was able to switch off and on. You see, because medicine is very uh, concrete and evaluative and writing depends a lot on the, the subconscious and creativity i guess they 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 call it rightly right brain left brain mm-hmm. but whatever whatever it is they're so very different that to snap from one into the other is actually it can be actually traumatic um if you're really in the zone and you're writing and then you realize that, you know, it's five minutes past eight and you're supposed to be, have been in clinic five minutes ago. Yeah. It's very, it's, it's very jarring. Very, very jarring. And mm-hmm. it's in some ways quite disturbing. But after a while, I got to the point that I could, you know, on lunch break, for example, I could switch, get in like maybe a 45 minute write, um, a few, you know, paragraphs or maybe a half a chapter or so by switching off the the medicine and then going to the to the other side and it, it it's not something that came actually all that easily i, I had to I, I worked on it i worked on it and um so and then what i worked on also was number one uh trimming down my schedule little by little i used to do hospital work and then i asked to stop that because hospital work is very disruptive there's no telling what time of the night they'll call you mm. and so you know if you don't sleep you know the second half of the night then next day you're zombied out and you can't write anyway so i stopped that and then slowly i managed to get my wednesdays off and then 
I got like half day Thursday. And then, mm-hmm. <laughs> so little by little, I sort of trimmed down my, my schedule. And the, I was fortunate that I was with a medical group who understood and actually encouraged my, you know, my creative uh, journey mm-hmm. rather than saying like, oh, no, you can't do this. We won't allow this. They were actually, you know, egging me on. So uh, in many ways, it became... Uh, time was money for me and you know I never asked for a raise because then somebody would look at my schedule and say wait a minute you're not even working (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so but that's one thing that I did and then I got weekends off you know I I started cutting down weekends so little by little I got more and more time to write and then about uh, like around 2016 I started telling people you know I'm probably going to retire from medicine within a couple years I told everybody so they would be ready and you know when 2018 came everybody understood they said you know Quay, we know you love this and you want to start on a new chapter in your life so you go with it you know and um so i left on great terms with my company and everything was good everything was good but yeah that was another transformation for me actually getting to the point that wow i don't have to go to work this morning mm-hmm. it's incredible and uh yeah it was a whole different whole different life in a way you know having that time to write and um not it's not so much that you have all day to write it's that you can do things more on your own time you know you don't have to schedule things around your job anymore you Mm -hmm. can schedule them around your writing and Mm -hmm. that makes a huge difference huge difference and it gives you a kind of freedom that oh it would be impossible for me to go back Mm-hmm. You know, having gotten used to that now, this would be, it would not be possible. Now, I know, I know of which you speak. I, I had a career where I was, I allowed myself to write on Wednesday nights and Sunday mm-hmm. afternoons, uh-huh. but it meant that I had to give up baseball and football yes. Yes. because, you know, the, uh, the, the, the lazy Sunday afternoon baseball game or the mm-hmm. frenetic football game. You know, on Friday, on Sundays, I had to give them up. So something had to give, and I'm sure you had to give something up too as well. But gradually with time, as my schedule allowed, I would be able to take a half a day here, a half a day mm-hmm. there. And, and oh, the day that when I got the full day, like, a, mm-hmm. a, like a, it was like maybe a, a holiday mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't have to work. Oh, my Lord, jumped out of bed, got in front of the keyboard, you know, got two chapters done that day. And it was just so exciting that, you know, you know that you were looking forward to it to be able to write. And yeah. uh, I don't know if that was the kind of enthusiasm you brought to the table for your writing, but I, I just felt that for me, it was like, okay, this is what John does for work. And this is what John does for play. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was always play. And I couldn't wait to go to recess. <laughs> so. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I see. I see exactly what you're you're saying. You um, you're sort of looking, you're looking forward to doing that. Uh, yeah, I had that experience too at work. I, especially when I was getting to crucial parts of the novel, where you know different types of plots were just like revolving around in my head. I would be counting the hours or the days to when I was going to you know, wake up, like say it was Monday, I'd be thinking of Wednesday when I'd be able to wake up, you know, at six in the morning and start writing for the whole day. That mm. I was just looking forward to that. Sure. Um, whereas now I have 
fewer of those days when I'm actually looking for it because I know, oh, well, next tomorrow morning I'm going to wake up. So right. you know, there's no countdown anymore. Right. Um, and then, so in many ways, it's it's more it's more relaxed in that in that way. Yeah. Oh, I, and I, I feel like uh, it's a free trip around the Monopoly board for me. Every day mm. that I can write, it's like, okay, yeah. I go past go, I get another $200. So yeah. it's uh, that kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you just said was kind of interesting because are you uh, by nature an outliner or are you what they call a discovery writer? Um, you know, with with my first book, Wife of the Gods, I, um, I did a lot of discovery writing, as you call it, or, or seat of the pants, as some people call it. Mm-hmm. Um, but subsequently, Soho. Uh, well, when I moved from when I moved from Random House to Soho, that which was after the, my second novel, Children of the Street, that was the second Darko Dawson novel. Um, the the um, my editor usually asked me for an outline or synopsis. Synopsis. And yes, and I, so I usually sent them like a ten page synopsis. And they made like maybe yeah, one or two comments about it. Nothing, nothing all that uh, specific. And then they went ahead and uh, if it sounded good to them, they went ahead and drew up the, the contract. And then, you know, I would start writing uh, the actual the story. So since then, I would say I've always had the synopsis. And, and quite honestly, I need that synopsis to kind of anchor me. But as as in the case of my present book, um, and and probably in the case of the previous one, but especially this one that I'm writing now, oh, the synopsis has all has virtually gone out the window. There, so many different things have happened that the synopsis would be, I mean, recognizable, but but barely. Mm. And you know, that's just that's just the creative process. You know, it, it's like. It's like taking a journey, you, you know where you're getting to, but then on the way you discover that, you know, some of the freeways are blocked and you have to take service streets and, sure. you know, wind through a maze of, of places that you've never been before, you know. Oh, no, I, I understand uh, exactly what you're there. talking about. No, I, yeah. I get it exactly. Uh, on one hand, uh, a synopsis can be uh, like your GPS telling you where to go, when yeah. to turn, how to go. On the other hand, uh, synopsis: if you're halfway through it, say, "Well, no, I really don't want to go to Albuquerque. Right. I want to. I want to do this instead." And that, that, exactly. and, and, and then you have to make a way, a different way, and different path. But the I reason I asked GPS because the GPS insists that you need to go this right. way, and, and, and every quarter like, mile, no. and every quarter mile, it'll keep saying, "Turn right, or you're out, you're out." Oh, recalculate. Yeah, recalculate. <laughs> Yeah. No, I get that. Uh, no, the reason I brought that up was that because if you knew that you had your three or four days from when you were saying, oh, geez, I have to wait three or four more days, yeah. uh, at least the plot, the dialogue, the the narrative, uh, everything could kind of like oh uh, percolate. I'll use the word percolate, but it would be more like mm-hmm. uh, maybe yeah. – uh, that's true. Yeah, you, you could think about things a little bit. So by the time you did get to, you know, your fanny in the seat and your hands on the keyboard, that um, you could be ready to rock because you already had kind of formulated mm-hmm. something that you wanted to do then and how you wanted to get there. Yeah. So you know, and I think that's an excellent point. I think you've made it really, really well because 
you would think that, for example, if I was doing, say, a book a year or a year and a half, and now I have all this time, I should be doing like three books a year. But, you know, it doesn't actually work that way. And I think that because, as you, you, you put it, you need that percolating time. Mm-hmm. So even though I'm off, some of my hours are not that efficient because I'm thinking of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it could be that even when I was a physician, uh, as a physician, I might have been actually more efficient with time. It's very par- paradoxical, but I could, I probably was actually like more on my game every time I sat down mm-hmm. because I'd had this time for my subconscious to work in the background. And as you know, it's a lot of it is really subconscious. It's not stuff you think you sometimes you are thinking consciously. But, you know, when you when you sleep, for example, your subconscious is still working on. The sure. Clock. So in that way, I realized that, you know, it, maybe, hey, I wrote five books while I was a physician. Um, and it doesn't look like I'm going to write much, much more than. No, I probably will write more than five in 10 years. No, that's not. True. Mm-hmm. But still, it's not going to be twice as much, for example. Mm-hmm. You know no, I get saying? it. No, I know. You do have to cogitate on some of this stuff. And and then there's all the cat videos you have to watch, too. So it's. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I I get it. I I, I got stuck on a a frog video this morning. There you go. The most adorable little frog that this guy has somewhere in Japan, I think. I couldn't understand the, the subtitles, but these adorable frogs making noises and jumping on his hand. It was just so. I spent an hour. Looking at <laughs> I, I I must have touched a nerve there. So, oh, yeah. no, but I, I I go back to what you said about the subconscious working and how I would on my Wednesday night writing and my Sunday writing, I'd always do my uh, edits Tuesday night and Friday, so that I, of the previous stuff, so that it would prime the pump so to speak, yeah. so that I could have that overnight uh, yep. Tuesday into Wednesday and I could have that yep. weekend to think about what I wanted to hit the ground running with the next time yeah, I, I wrote. And I think that's huge for a writer to be able to do that. I also, yeah. I don't know about you, but I keep a um, pen and paper next mm-hmm. to the, uh, I'm old school, pen and paper. Some people would keep a phone and notepad and or maybe a dictation device. But I keep a pad and paper, and if something comes to me that can help with the plot, I, I will turn on the light, and my wife will curse, and then I will <laughs> then I will write down the note, <laughs> and I tell her I love her too, and then I turn the light off. But uh, essentially, uh, some of my best um, things that I, I got stumped on, you know, come to me in the middle of the night, and I have a chance. Yeah. Oh yeah, I can work that. I can I do that. Absolutely. And then there's the time that I, I think about that and I don't do it. And then the next day I'm thinking, what was I thinking about last night? What yeah. was that great idea that what I had? That? Yeah, yeah, and you can't, you can't retrieve it. No. Uh, you know, sometimes, um, you know, sometimes what I do is like you, I, end, I might end the chapter or end on a good note knowing where I'm going the following day. And I do that because it increases a sense of eagerness and makes me... Uh, more willing to get out of bed the next day, um, and and also like you say, it primes the pump mm-hmm. uh, because you know you say, oh, I know what I'm I'm writing in the morning, and and you may get uh, an additional idea on top of that uh, during the night. And mm-hmm. you wake up and you, you realize, oh man, that's the way that's the way it could go. 
And um, yeah, I'm I'm a great proponent in, in uh, if you're stuck, stuck uh, <laughs> go take a nap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't beat um, yourself up on it. Yeah, for yeah, sure. yeah. It, because it beca- it really becomes kind of pro- productive. On, on this particular novel, I've been having a lot of those moments for for one reason or the other things have have not been working out quite the way i wanted them to i think i'm back on track but it's i've been through a little bit of a a rough rough time with it and um sometimes you know you can't uh force it no um you just have to sort of wait until you know your mind settles down and then you know there are just moments that you say oh okay well that's the way to do it, you know. And you sort of right. shock that. Why didn't you see that before? It's it's not that complicated. You know? no. And I think sometimes, you know, especially with murder mysteries, you're searching for this real complex, you know, way to do things and twists and turns. But you know, sometimes it's just like, you know, don't don't sweat it. Just do mm. what seems, you know, the right path, and don't worry about whether it's clever or not. Sure. You know? No, yeah. I, I know. I, I always, I always look at my novels like, okay, the first third, I always, I'm always resisting doing an info dump. Then, then I have to say, okay, how do I do the saggy middle without letting it sag? How do I keep it propped up? And then I don't rush the end. So it's, you know, and then book after book after book, it's always the same thing. No, don't do the info dump. Try to keep things interesting in the middle and uh, don't rush the ending. So, yeah. but for me, yeah, the info dump, uh, the info dump is what usually happens in my my first draft, and it's okay because I'm just I'm basically feeling my way, and my editor will say like this sounds like an info dump, or it sounds <laughs> like you know a geography class or uh, you know, <laughs> a travel log, and that's fine because I'm yeah. really what I'm doing is I'm 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 feeling my way around, and so yeah. you know on my rewrite it won't it won't sound like that, but. It's just one of those things that the the first draft, you know, Hemingway said uh, the first draft of anything is crap. Actually, I think he said it's shit. But mm-hmm. um, and uh, he's right. My, you know, my first drafts are usually um, close to a train wreck. I would say. No. And, <laughs> <laughs> thank God for editors, right? Uh, oh gosh, yes. Oh, oh yes, thank God for editors for real. People that uh, can keep the train on the track and moving in the direction yes, that it should go. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or tell you that you've been out in the woods all afternoon. It's time to get back for yeah. sure. All right. Well, we will get back to John's interview with Quake Quarty in just a few moments. But now is the time on the show when I like to turn things over to the experts. And by experts, uh, I have meant in the past intermittently uh, bookstore employees and owners, reviewers, bloggers, and certainly uh, other crime writers. And uh, for this month's episode, we are going to hear from some former guests uh, and super reviewer, Kevin Tipple, uh, also recent guest, Rhonda Armbrust, Vicki J. Carter, and the husband and wife team, Will Zeilinger and Janet Lynn. They're all going to recommend some books for you. So let's hear what they have to say. This is Kevin Tipple of Kevin's Corner, and I'd like to recommend... 21 Immortals, Inspector Mislan, and the Yi Sang 
Murders by Rosalind Maud Knorr. This is the first book of a police procedural series that's set in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. It, it revolves around the holiday, which is basically their New Year's Day celebration, end of the year celebration, where he's called out to a crime scene and a family has been murdered and they're sitting at their holiday table. So that's uh, 21 Immortals, Inspector Ms. Lond and the Yi Sang Murders by Rosalind Moore Noor. Good stuff. Check it out. Yeah, this is Rhonda Armbrust. I'm the author of the Remote Viewer series available on Amazon. And I'd like to recommend the three books written by Dr. Michael Newton. And that is uh, Destiny of Souls, Journey of Souls, and Life Between Lives. And uh, Dr. Newton stumbled onto hypnotizing his clients and taking them into the uh, soul realm and uh, learning about what happens after people die. So um, it's it's very interesting stuff, kind of life altering. And I'm a certified hypnotist myself, and so it rings quite true for me. He ended up hypnotizing over seven thousand people who gave similar stories about you know what what happens you know after you die just really interesting stuff so again that's uh, dr michael newton uh life between lives and destiny of souls and journey of souls Hi there, it's Vicki J. Carter, the author's librarian, and the book that I would like to recommend for you is Walk the Promised Road, a novel of the Oregon Trail by Ann Schroeder. And it's a historically accurate um, book that starts in 1848, and it follows a young gal from the Missouri Territory all the way over to the Oregon side um, on the Oregon Trail. You can hear more about Ann Schroeder and what her inspiration was for writing the book on my podcast, Authors of the Pacific Northwest. And again, that's Walk the Promised Road, a novel of the Oregon Trail by Ann Schroeder. This is Will Zeiliger. And I'm Janet Lynn. We're the authors of the Skylar Drake Mystery Series that we co-write. We both just finished reading Matthew Dunn's Sentinel. It's a great thriller, and we'd recommend it for anybody. Real fast pace, and the characters just pop off the page. Highly recommended. Okay, that's Matthew Dunn, and the book is The Sentinel. All right, some great recommendations there. Um, and since you're a guest on the show, John, uh, why don't you uh, add one more to the pile? Sure. I just finished a wonderful novel by uh, Matt Coyle. He's an Anthony Award-winning author and also an, a Seamus Award-winning author. And the book that I read was Lost Tomorrows. It was the last in the Rick Cahill novels. And I would recommend, and I'm going to do this, go back to the series starter of the Rick Cahill uh, series and start from the beginning because it was a really good read on this uh, flawed fictional detective. Yeah, Matt was on the show just recently to talk about uh, this series and especially this book. And I had a really good time chatting with him. And it sounds like a great book. I haven't read it yet. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to have to put it uh, uh, higher up on my TBR list. Well, and, and the nice thing about it was he's not, I, I had interviewed him previously, but it came to me 
as part of the swag that was uh, supposed to be uh, handed out for the uh, BoucherCon conference in, I guess it was going to be New Orleans, right, New Orleans. And uh, the nice people there at uh, Mystery Writers of America decided to send out a, a box of books to everyone. And in there was uh, Matt Coyle's Lost Tomorrows. So uh, I really liked the fact that I got a free hardback. <laughs> I have yeah. to I have to admit my lottery tickets didn't pay off quite as handsomely where that's concerned. Um, but we all also got a t-shirt from that. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, that was a, that's a cool shirt. All right. Well, uh, so, so there's five good recommendations for you folks. Uh, give all of those some consideration. Uh, meanwhile, let's get back to John's interview with Quay and find out some more about this interesting guy. So let's just let's just go into Darko Dawson first, and what what you know what made you think about this character, and why did you think this would be such a great idea, and then how did that become a series? So mm-hmm. um, I know that I'm I'm kind of gushing here, but yeah, tell me tell me the story. Well, two thousand, uh, I think it was two thousand. I was traveling, and of course that was the. <laughs> That was the Y2K year. Mm-hmm. I don't remember where everything was supposed to, <laughs> the most horrible things were supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. And we were all dis- disappointed on the, the, the next, the next, uh, the next day when, you know, nothing has actually collapsed, but I was traveling. It, it may have been 1999. I don't remember, but I was making one of these, if it's Tuesday, this must be Belgium kind of trips. I started in, in London, uh, then it was uh, uh, Paris, uh, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, and then finally I ended up in Sweden, where my my one of my brothers lives. And <clears throat> I was in Paris, uh, just about to go out on the town, you know, the City of Light. Um, this was pretty much pre-COVID and pre uh, pre-massive. Uh, terrorist bombing time mm-hmm. you know a, a simpler time shall we say yeah uh, and i was just about to go out clubbing because i like to sample the, the clubs in different cities well i used to maybe not so much now mm-hmm. um and just as i was leaving i was watching a, um a, um a documentary it was in french of course and what it was was a documentary of a a rural um, detective in the country of Cote d'Ivoire, which is uh, in in um, West Africa, one country west of Ghana on the Gulf of Guinea, the Atlantic Ocean. And he was in this village where a murder had taken place. And what he would do was he would go around scaring um, his witnesses and suspects with the threat of um, curses or or juju as you might call them, mm-hmm. and this this made them fearful and made them spill the beans about each other or you know who might who they might have seen on this night or that night. And he was also a pretty brutal guy, you know, slapping people around. And this this wasn't um, uh, this wasn't like a reality. Well, it was a real a real reality show. It was a documentary. It wasn't. Um, you know, it was a movie or anything. Mm-hmm. They literally followed this guy around, and and he was such an interesting sort of um, evil guy looking for the truth. I was really struck by this character, and I thought, you know, well, what if I what if I did something like that um, in Ghana, where where I had grown up, um, and had this detective 
you know, going around um, threatening people with different uh, uh, sort of superstitious beliefs. Because in in sub-Saharan Africa, beliefs in um, the paranormal um, or uh, the occult, magical, uh, magic, uh, evil, uh, the power of the ancestors, the different gods, those are very important uh, things, even in everyday life, not the way it is in the West. So that was a, it's a very important part of life in general. And in that way, it can also come into solving mysteries. And so my basic vision was to bring in some of these uh, indigenous mores and beliefs into my writing. And at first, I wanted to do it in a Ghana-like country because I had grown up there, but I hadn't been there back in, you know, like 15 years or so. So I wrote a whole novel with this idea in mind, and it was a, you know, a false false country. I don't remember what I called it. Okay. And when I sent it in to an agent, she said um, she said she she liked it, but she didn't think she could sell it. But she was curious about one thing. She saw that I had grown up in Ghana, and she was just curious why. Why would you um, Why would you make it a Ghana-like country when you grew up in Ghana? Couldn't you just make it Ghana? And then it's when that's when I realized, you know what, I'm going to have to go back to Ghana and, and research things. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a good thing I did because things had changed so radically, you know, from when I left when there were no cell phones to getting back and everybody had a cell phone. You know, they right. most. Most of the developing world jumped the whole landline thing, landline thing, and went straight to cell phones. Mm-hmm. Forget about the landline. Right. You know, half the time it didn't work. Right. Uh, you know, the weather, the infrastructure. You know. So, right. Yeah, straight to cell phones. So when I I got back and I saw this different world, I said, "Oh my God, I'm gonna have to change the story." So Darko was Darko was the prototype of this, you know, really vicious detective, um, and I wrote it that way. It was. It wasn't bad. It was it wasn't great, but when I I sent it into uh, Molly Rusoff's agency, she had a reader I read it for her, and the reader liked it. But she said, "You've left so many uh, different sub storylines uh, unfinished." You know, there was there was this little boy who was sick, and you didn't say anything about it. And so, what it what happened was I ended up rewriting it and I also I also had to adjust uh, the character the character Darko Dawson and I called him Darko because I, I just like that idea of dark being in mm-hmm. his name yeah sure and there is a there is a name in um, in Ghana the the indigenous equivalent is is Daku which is D D A A K U, and actually, I, I, I'm thinking now I could have actually left it D A A K U because that's actually very interesting. But I decided to anglicize it and, and make it Darko, um, thinking it was kind of original. And it was really funny that the, <laughs> there was a day when I was in in, in Ghana visiting, and um, there was a there was a, a car crash, and you know some cops came around. And one of the one of the police guys who interviewed me about what actually had happened in the car crash, his nameplate said Darko. Really? I said, "Oh, well, it's not as original as I thought." No. Um, and then Dawson is Dawson sounds very English, and it is English, and that's because one of Darko's parents comes from the Western region, where 
um, the British, uh, as well as the Dutch and the Portuguese and the Swedes and the Germans, uh, settled at different points in, you know, uh, Ghana's uh, early life from you know six, from fourteen seventy three on. Yeah. And so a lot of the names from that that Western region are either uh, British derived or um, uh, Portuguese or Dutch. Okay. Um, so, you know, and uh, so you'll have people named D'Souza or, or Johnson and those, that's all, um, you know, colonial influence. Sure. So I, I chose, I chose Dawson because, well, you know, it's an easy name to say for Americans and, right. you know, it's not, it's not totally out of the ordinary, especially if you come from the Western region. So that's how, um, you know, he, he took his name. Uh, but I, I had to shape him a little bit from, you know, he was a, he was crude in the, in the beginning and I toned that down a little bit and um, also took some attributes from his, his assistant, uh, whose name was uh, Chikata, and I gave it to, to Darko so that he came to be the, the character that he was, which is he, he, a little bit mercurial. You know, very, very, very intent on solving the mystery and bringing people to justice. And his one vice was um, smoking marijuana, which, of course, <laughs> is against the law in Ghana. <laughs> and to be a so, police officer or a detective yes, doing exactly. that. Yeah. M- minor point. Minor yeah. point. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know why I don't know why that that uh, that came to me. But I what I did know was that, you know, I wasn't going to do the, the alcoholic detective trope that would just was not acceptable to me mm-hmm. I, I have never liked alcohol and i've never liked you know being drunk as a uh, you know a character uh, trait uh, okay. at all you know no um, i so get that's, it that's how he came to be the the marijuana smoking uh detective uh, with the guy in the police service darko dawson yeah yeah now did you start writing emma jean at the uh, at the same time you were writing Darko, or how did she come about? Emma came about because uh, the last Darko uh, novel, which was uh, called Murder by His Grace, um, I introduced his first female um, assistant. Uh, she was a, a corporal um, who had just joined the detective, the homicide service. And she became, you know, the rookie who was learning from, you know, the senior, from the boss, from mm-hmm. the senior. And my idea, which I, pro- I projected far into the future, and I was thinking that I would have her have a spin-off series in which she kind of works on her own, but, but Darko is her mentor. And, uh, you know, she goes to him for guidance, but she basically solves the mystery. But um, my, my editor at Soho... Uh, Juliet Graham, she said, you know, Quay, I'd love this to be a new series, but we can't have we can't have the two characters in the same world. They have to be in separate worlds. You, mm-hmm. you gotta have you gotta have Darko, you gotta have Emma, and they're not meeting. So okay. I had already written one full novel with Darko and Emma and I had to just throw that whole thing out. Which, oh. Which is very, oh what pain. <laughs> A stab to my heart. Oh, or you just changed the name from Emma to uh, uh, Josephine. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? What I did—that's that's an easy uh, word took, replacement. Yeah, I took Darko completely out. But you see, the thing is, though, because I had 
created a story in which, you know, Emma was part of the Ghana Police Service along with Darko. Yeah. I had to take her out of that world and create a totally different world. So mm-hmm. in many ways, it was unavoidable that I had to just write practically the whole book. Um, and and Emma started out with the Ghana police, but through a, a during a after a Me Too movement, you know, where she was kicked out of the, the force for not <laughs> complying with somebody's wishes, and as you can tell, mm-hmm. and you can tell what I'm saying, right? Um, she joins a, a private detective agency, and so in that way, she began on her own trajectory, and and that's how I I made her sort of differentiate. Uh, from uh, Darko, and uh, although they have interactions with the Ghana Police Service, which are sometimes, you know, <laughs> adversary. Sure. Um, she was in in her own uh, her own world, so mm. that's that's really actually how she, uh, she came about. So, uh, and and because she's a private investigator, yeah, uh, your editors uh, submitted it to the Private Eye Writers of America, uh, the Missing yeah. American. And because the the Seamus Awards only are for uh, real, not real life. They're only for the uh, yes. the characters. Because Seamus means that you're yeah. a private investigator. Yeah. Just have to be a private investigator. Can't be an amateur yes. sleuth. Has to be a paid private investigator. Or they got rules about that. And, it's interesting, uh, isn't it? Yeah. And I was, I was lucky because, you know, although it, it wasn't my first novel but it was my first novel with a private investigator so mm-hmm. I, I sort of just got in sort of under the door you know, that's okay you know but it's yeah. the best first private eye novel boom yeah which is, was great i yeah, big surprise for me yeah hey listen winning an award from an organization that uh this is their feast you know this is uh they you know they're either pri- working private investigators or uh, crime writers that write private investigators, and mm. this is the this is what they feast on every day. And for you to come out of the you know woodwork, so to speak, you know, with a first yeah. time, and to to win the award, congratulations! You know, Thank that's you. Fa- Thank fantastic. You. Thank you. Yeah, they they sent me a lovely uh, lovely plaque, and mm. and I know you know if it was if it wasn't COVID, we would have had a nice uh, I know dinner, black tie dinner, and all that kind of stuff, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, those days may have, well, they've gone for a while anyway. Right. Oh, uh, forever, but they have for a while, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, private eye writers of America, that, that association decided not to have their banquet. Yeah. And I don't think they, I don't think they even announced one because even though it was thought that we would have the Mystery Writers of America conference in New Orleans, Mm-hmm. Um, they decided, no, they weren't going to go that way. And, and look how fortuitous it was they did that because, well, you know, the D variant came around and um, yeah. Mystery Writers of America, the Bushikon conference, had to return everybody's money and it wasn't that was, pretty. That was, that was a mess. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I did, I, you know, it's very, uh, with, my, with my doctor hat on, I, I sort of, I forget who I actually emailed and I said, are you positive you're going to do this? Are you absolutely 100% sure? And they said, yep. And a couple months later, it's like, well, 
Unfortunately, the reality is, but I said, you know, you guys, I told you. <laughs> well, I didn't tell them that, but uh, that was my thought. I said, you know, it's a little bit too dicey still. Yeah. Um, and, and that was the, the case, actually. What I did with my airline credit was mm-hmm. I applied my airline credit dollar for dollar to the Mystery Writers of America conference, a Bushikon conference in Minneapolis next year. And, yes, that's uh, what I did. I did that too, yes. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I think maybe I have like $40. $40. I can maybe buy some chips and drinks on there. <laughs> but, you know, but uh, yeah, it worked out well for me. So <laughs> there we are. Uh, what's next on the list? What what's what do you have? Well, you you talked about a fourth a fourth book, right? Did you say? Yeah, yeah I I have. Well, that'd be uh, it'd be number three, Emma Jan. Okay. Um, it's called Last Scene in La Paz, and that's La Paz, Accra, Ghana, not La Paz, Bolivia. Um, so you're taking her out of Ghana, huh? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you say that, but actually, I am. It's a it's a uh, it's an international tri. How should I say it? A tri-national um, novel story. It takes place in Ghana, Nigeria, and Niger, and okay. has to do with uh, human and sex trafficking. Um, you know, there's a large, uh, it's particularly uh, Nigerians, about maybe 80-90% of Nigerians who try to get to Europe via the uh, Sahara Desert route. Mm-hmm. First to Niger, which is is uh, uh, in right at bang in the middle of the the desert, from Niger to Libya, um, Tripoli, Libya, and then they cross the Mediterranean, which, as as you know, is no uh, small uh, small uh, trip, no, no no small deal at all, Mm-mm. and many of them end up uh, drowning and so on, and so. I'm taking on this. It's a it's a very big topic. That there are actually three different areas that deal with um, trafficking and the the abuse, basically, of women. And uh, one is the 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 pros, the uh, the sex worker trade in Europe. That goes on in cities, you know, uh, beautiful cities like uh, Florence, mm-hmm. Italy which turns into quite something different at night, people don't realize. Um, you mean you and, just don't uh, go out for gelato? I mean, <laughs> You know, and it's funny, I was in Florence, I went out for this marvelous gelato, and I felt as though the city was the most innocent, wonderful place. <laughs> Little did I know. Um, and of course, unfortunately, that time I wasn't researching for this novel, but it would have been a great time, you know, mm-hmm. for me to do some research. And um, and then there's there is a. Oh, I guess you could one. call it research, Kwai. Oh, it could happen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It could happen. Um, and then there's another pa- another path from Nigeria to Ghana. A lot of young women uh, go from Nigeria to Ghana, where life is actually, believe it or not, the GDP of, of Ghana smaller, though it is uh, compared to Nigeria, the GDP per capita of Ghana is, is greater than Nigeria, and the economic opportunities are better in Ghana. So there's that route. And then there's the, the, the last one is sort of the local, um, the local sex workers who come from, you know, the surrounding area. And that's one. And so it's three different 
aspects of this this awful uh, trade and they're all sort of coming together under one mystery and so i did visit nigeria i visited niger and then i came back to ghana this, earlier this year okay um but but it's a it it's a lot and i think because i had written the story before and i came back and found i had so much stuff to change Ugh, it, it's it, it's been a bit of bad boy, mm. <laughs> to be quite honest with you it, it's shaping up now but uh, i've had to wrestle with it to be to be very honest and sincere with you. Oh, good. Um, it's yeah. good that you do have to do a little hard work. You know, <laughs> you know and, I, and I say that jokingly, of course, yeah. but the fact of the matter was, you know, uh, you challenged yourself. You took a hell of a yeah. theme yeah. and you set out to, to write a book that was not easy. And no, now not. you're going to d- try to do it justice. You're not going to, yeah. you know, just uh, mail it in. You're going to try to do it justice. And, and if Absolutely. it's going to be hard, you're going to look back at it and say, I'm glad I did it. I did it. Yeah. 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 Going through it is like, well, you know, it's like any other really difficult task. You, you sort of don't see a way out, but you know that there's going to be one day you're going to look back and say, Phew, I did it. Mm-hmm. And that's actually the only thing that keeps you going. <laughs> now, just get, getting back, you, were you surprised by the Edgar nomination with the Mystery Writers of America? Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I, I, you know what? I, when I I knew about the Edgar thing, and I I had this idea. It's like, oh wow, that's just for special special writers. You know who? Like if they're in the stratosphere, you, people that I I don't even dare to you know look at. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like because they're so such incredible writers. I I mm-hmm. have to keep my head head bowed in yeah, <laughs> no. their presence. Yeah. So and then so somebody somebody. Um, on Instagram, texted me and said, "Wow, congrats on your the, the nomination!" And I was like, "What nomination?" And they said, "What? You don't know?" <laughs> <laughs> but Edgar, I said, "Get the hell out!" And then well, I was out, and so when I when I got back back home, I saw my my inbox flooded with all these congratulations, and I was like, mm. "You know what? Somebody's made like a really big mistake here." So, <laughs> you know, no, that's not the case. Mistake. No, that's and not. So then I did. I went to you know the, the website, and I said, "Wow, really? It's true." I, I was I was flabbergasted. I, I had no clue that anything like that could happen. No clue. None. Well, from now on, it's. Uh... The award-winning and award-nominated Quay Corte, uh, yeah, and that's and it, those those words always have to roll together. The award-winning, award-nominated. Excuse, excuse me, ma'am. I'm the award-winning and award-nominated. Yeah. Do you know who I am? Yeah. No, you're number twelve, sir. You have to wait your turn. <laughs> that's right. right. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, well, I don't care who you are, sir. <laughs> yes. Anyhow, no, I, I, I joke, but I don't. And uh, it, it was just such a pleasure having you on today, Quay. It Thank really you. was. It was. It was really great. Thanks, John. And uh, it was wonderful being with you and and talking all these things out. To a, a fellow author really helps because in many ways they understand, you know, some of the mm-hmm. turmoil. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Now, uh, how can people get your books? Obviously, that's the big question. And how can people reach you? Well, uh, with with getting the books, I of course I always encourage everybody to you know what whatever if they have a, a local you know uh, bookstore, mm-hmm. especially mystery bookstores, 
and and most most big cities do do have you know uh, Minneapolis uh, has um, mm-hmm. uh, what is it uh, what is Minneapolis is uh, I forget but anyway Baltimore is like the Ivy and um, there's the all all big cities have some kind of mystery novel, mm-hmm. mystery bookstore. So I encourage people to order it from them. But then otherwise, it's, you know, available from the usual uh, online Platforms. channels. Yeah. And then um, to, I would love people to read my blog. So that's uh, quayquartay.com. Uh, my name is spelled K-W-E-I, Quay, and Quarte is Q-U-A-R-T-E-Y. Like I tell people, it's quarter, but a Y on the end instead of an R. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's my <clears throat> my website. And then um, you can always uh, email me at info at quayquarte.com or quayquarte at gmail.com either way. So mm-hmm. I'm happy to take inquiries, anything. Um, okay. Option offers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's always a nice idea. Yes. Right? And and you want to keep a little bit on the merch too, right? You yes, know, absolutely. The Darko Dawson secret uh, curse ring. And, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm joking, of course. Anyhow, again, thank you so much for coming on, Quay. It was wonderful. Thank Thanks, you. John. Thank you again, sir. Appreciate it. Well, there you are, folks. Quay Cordy, as interviewed by John Hoda. Um, what a great interview, John. What an interesting guy. What Was there anything about the interview that just really struck you as uh, super interesting or just really kind of stuck with you? Well, here's another professional, somebody that is uh, he, that I've had a chance to talk to that comes from a professional background. He's a, he's a doctor or was a doctor. I've interviewed lawyers. I've interviewed other people that you know have professional positions. And the thing that struck me what most was how he made time for his writing. He found that he had a passion for it and wanted to do it. But as a busy physician, he had to make time to do it. So that to me was very telling. And it's also part of what I I seem to hear from other professionals as well that love what they do, and but they still make time for their passion, and that is writing. So for me, that's what uh, my biggest takeaway from that uh, conversation. Yeah, I mean, you did a great job interviewing him. A fascinating guy. Um, You know, I'm reminded of that old saying, and I can't remember where it came from, but the idea that you you can never go home again. And for me, that was kind of highlighted by the fact that, you know, he wrote the book in his hometown or about his hometown. And by the time, you know, he was ready to, to finish it, he had to go back to the hometown to essentially do research. And it just kind of highlights how much things have changed and how they do change. I mean, my dad still lives in the same house I grew up in. And and mm-hmm. so when I go back home, I kind of, I marvel at what has not changed and at how much has it's, it's just kind of part of the human experience. And so uh, just an interesting little tidbit that came out of your interview. Great job and uh, a real nice guy to feature uh, for the month of February. On the next episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime, we're going to talk to yet another podcaster. Uh, John's on this episode as co-host. Next episode, we're going to talk to uh, Brian Collins. 
uh, who has a, a podcast about becoming a writer and uh, an interesting guy. And he's in the UK. So if for no other reason than the accent, go ahead and tune in to the next episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime. Now, this is the time in the show where I usually give a Zafiro update. But uh, since I have you on the show, John, as a co-host, uh, why don't you give us a Hoda update? Okay. Well, I've had an opportunity to uh, re-edit and reproof, uh, read my series Magnet, and it's uh, Liberty City Nights. It's a free prequel novella from my website. And I just wanted to take another pass at it again, just to get a lot of little glitches out of it. So I'm really happy about that. And uh, my uh, advanced readers team have gotten the uh, uh, new soft covers and they agree that uh, the extra work, the extra elbow grease to do the uh, proofreading paid off. So I'm really happy about that. And people can get that by going to my website uh, or Amazon, but uh, I prefer at my website. That's www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. And that's where they can get it for free. And that leads them into your Marsha O'Shea series, which is ongoing. Yes, absolutely. All right. Uh, great interview, John. And I want to say thank you for coming on the show and doing that uh, interview. Uh, of course, I want to say thanks to Quay Cordy for coming on the show and uh, Down and Out Books for being a sponsor. Let's not forget the folks who came along for a book recommendation, uh, Kevin Tipple, who you'll be hearing from uh, pretty much every month for the rest of the season. He was kind enough to do several of those. Um, and likewise, Rhonda Armbrust, Vicki J. Carter, and the husband and wife team, Will Zeilinger and Janet Lynn, who have their own podcast as well. Um, and so does Vicki, as a matter of fact. Uh, Vicki has the authors of the Pacific Northwest uh, podcast, in addition to doing uh, the job of being the author's librarian. So great resource for any of you authors out there. And then the Zeilinger Lynn combo have uh, chatting with authors. So there's a lot of podcasts out there to fill your time, including John's podcast, my favorite detective stories, which you can also find at his website, johnhoda.com. So thanks to everyone. Thanks to you, the listener for giving this uh, podcast, another shot, another week. And uh, we'll be back next week with Brian Collins until then. This is Frank Zafiro and John Hoda telling you sometimes you have to be in the wrong place to write crime. 